Up against military censorship and an aggressive new government, the Israeli media are in a state of retreat. Rwanda, the flawed investigation into the suspicious death of an investigative journalist. And translation is transformation. How literature changes as it travels from one language to another. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. We begin with the alarming escalation of violence, most of it one way, in the occupied Palestinian territories. Last year, Israeli security forces killed more Palestinians on the West Bank than in any year since 2005. And 2023 has been worse. Under a new, ultra-nationalist Israeli government led by Benjamin Netanyahu, the death rate has more than doubled to more than one Palestinian per day, including the 10 killed in Janine last week in an army raid. The ongoing human rights abuses, the theft of Palestinian land, the destruction of homes, paving the way for Jewish settlers, have human rights groups calling Israel an apartheid state. The majority of Israelis support what is happening, but then they're getting a very different version of events. Most of the Israeli news media either ignore the brutality of the occupation or present a military-friendly version of the story. And even that's not good enough for the new government, which now has voices of dissent in its crosshairs. How much is a life worth? How newsworthy is the taking of that life? If the life is Palestinian and the news outlet is Israeli, the answer to both questions is not much. There are exceptions, people with profiles, like Al Jazeera correspondent Shireen Abu Akleh, whose killing last year made headlines. Or if there are 10 of you, including two children, shot dead last week when Israeli soldiers raided a refugee camp in Janine. That will attract some coverage. But if you are like most of the 35 Palestinians killed so far this year, a rate of roughly one per day the Israeli media will probably ignore your story. And if they do report on it, chances are the first draft will be the Israeli army's version of your death, not the witnesses or your families. So prepare, as you are dying, to be called a terrorist. It goes beyond just this raid on Janine. Just a week before, there was a 45-year-old Palestinian father of five uh, Ahmed Kahla, who was actually pulled out of his car, pepper sprayed, and shot to death for no good reason by the Israeli army. And virtually every mainstream Israeli media outlet reported that a terrorist was killed by the Israeli military. And it took an Israeli military investigation to have leaked revealing that the report that this man was attempting to stab a soldier was in fact not the case. This kind of raids that their official purpose is to, to arrest so-called terrorists, but practically it's going into small streets and alleys, searching, showing presence. According to our research, 25 out of the 35 Palestinians killed in military raids that Israel initiated into Palestinian towns and villages meaning that most of the people killed didn't try to commit any attack against settlers or soldiers in uh, so-called Israeli areas, but rather the army going into Palestinian areas and looking for these confrontations. When it comes to the killing of Palestinians, Palestinians are lumped into one category. 
We're nameless, we're faceless, we don't have histories, we don't have lives. We're just considered to be numbers that are put forward to die. The main narrative that emerged after the massacre in Jinnian is that the army was not only protecting itself, but that they were protecting Israeli citizens. Each and every Palestinian was simply labeled a terrorist, and that was it. We asked the Ministry of Defense, the Army, and Israeli news outlets about what their critics are saying about them. None of them responded. All now operate under the watch of Benjamin Netanyahu's new far-right coalition government, which was sworn in just five weeks ago. It includes the radical Jewish Power Party, led by Itamar Ben-Gavir, Minister of National Security, who likes to tell Palestinians he is their landlord. The government's first legislative steps do not bode well for journalism or other Israeli democratic institutions. Justice Minister Yariv Levine has introduced changes that would weaken the Supreme Court's ability to overturn laws passed by Parliament. Another proposal would revamp and politicize the process for selecting judges. There is a continued push to further restrict journalists, their ability to criticize the Israeli military. On the media side, Channel 14 is a small, privately owned, right-wing channel that Israelis describe as a budding Fox News. Communications Minister Shlomo Kadi has repeatedly said he wants to cut the funding of Khan, the public broadcaster, in half and divert that money to Channel 14. Why? Because they can because it's getting budgets from the government. That's the only reason why they declared war on them. But what is more important is this new atmosphere. They are talking, for example, about legislations in which criticizing the soldiers will be illegal. What do I do then? I mean, there is not one single day that I don't criticize the Israeli army. So the atmosphere is very threatening right now. The danger is there. Look at Hungary, look at Turkey, we are on the way. This government tried to fight anything, anything that is not serving their far-right agenda. On the recent actions of the government regarding democracy or the legal system, I think the Israeli media is actually giving kind of a full picture. And for many Israelis that are now flooding the streets, this actions is the last straw to make what they see as a democracy to a non-democracy. What is lacking in this protest is of course the Palestinian issue. You cannot talk about democracy while there's occupation and apartheid. And one thing that you never see is the Israeli media challenging Israeli ministers on their racist, fascist positions. Itamar Ben-Nikvir stated very openly that he believes in the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. His campaign slogan was that he needs to show people who the masters of the house are. <laughs> the news media give their racist extremist ideology a platform to say whatever it is that they want to say while challenging Palestinians on every single statement, it's in the normalization of fascism inside Israel.
In Israel, talk of a peace process or a two-state solution is long gone, replaced by the most aggressive form of Zionism Israelis have ever known. The government simply presumes that Jews have the right to the land of the occupied West Bank, settlements that are illegal under international law. And that is now the basis through which most Israeli news outlets frame this story. It is also the way Washington sees it, effectively, if not officially. What is the status of the Palestinian people in the West Bank? That is what made this exchange at the State Department this past week so telling. Try as he might, this Palestinian journalist could not get the U.S. spokesman to admit the obvious, the incontestable, that Palestinians are an occupied people. Let me say a couple of things. Political statements or media coverage in the U.S. or Israel that erases the context of the occupation deprives news audiences of what they need to understand why some Palestinians would react so violently to it, such as the armed attack outside a synagogue in occupied East Jerusalem a week ago, in which seven Israelis were killed. This is why you see so many Israelis who view the settlements as being normal. That's the fundamental problem. If you don't understand that you've stolen the land of another people and that you're building settlements on that land continually, then it's impossible for them to understand why it is that there is such resistance to occupation. And it's the exact opposite of what we see in a place like Russia and Ukraine, for example. What the Russian military claims is taken with a grain of salt. What do you make of this statement by uh, Moscow that, that Ukraine, in fact, is planning uh, this sinister attack? Yeah, we just heard from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky that, of course, this isn't true. And we take the words of Ukrainians more at face value, and yet, we have the exact opposite relationship when it comes to the Israeli occupation, where it's the Israeli government's word that's taken as the default, and whenever Palestinians have something else to report on, it's, well, Palestinians claim and as if it's something that you can't fully trust. And that really is a problem that exists in American media as much as it does in Israeli media. The Israeli media weren't always like this. There was a time, going back to the 1990s or early 2000s, that even the country's toughest critics had to admit that news outlets there did their job. They have always had censors, curbing their coverage of military operations and security issues. But these days, the larger problem is self-censorship. Israeli journalism has been on a slow, steady slide, away from the confrontational towards the collaborative. There is a rare coalition in Israel in which nobody wants to know and nobody wants to tell. The army, the government, the secret services don't want you to know. The publishers, the writers, the editors don't want to bother you because they know that you don't want to know. One day when an historian will come and judge what happened here, the media will be the first one to be blamed. To Rwanda now and the death of an investigative journalist, John Williams in Twali, a case in which the official narrative on how he died doesn't stack up. Nick Muirhead has been following the story.
According to that official narrative, John Williams was killed in a motorbike accident on January 17th. However, more than two weeks later, the authorities are yet to produce a police report, an exact location of where the accident took place, any video or photo evidence. They haven't even released the names of those involved. This past Tuesday, 90 press freedom and human rights groups released a joint statement calling for an independent and transparent investigation into John Williams's case. Because when it comes to Rwandans who are critical of the government, both inside and outside the country, there's a pattern of them winding up dead. I'm focused on justice, human rights and advocacy. And I know all those three areas are risky here in Rwanda. John Williams was the editor of the privately owned Chronicles newspaper, but in 2021 he set up a YouTube channel called Pax TV, which has racked up more than 4 million views. The channel is known in Rwanda for its hard-hitting journalism that is, for the most part, lacking in the mainstream media. Like the crackdown on what Paul Kagame's government deems to be dissident voices in Rwanda. John Williams knew that his journalism could put him in harm's way, and yet he continued. And until a proper investigation is conducted, the suspicion that his death was no accident will not go away. Thanks, Nick. It is something you see in news coverage all the time, or hear the voice of a translator, and they don't always get it right. The translation of literature, though, from one language to another can be an even trickier business. Literature is much more subtle than journalism. It's less direct. And languages come with peculiarities, audiences with their own cultures and expectations. The language most frequently translated into English by American publishers is French, followed by Spanish. When it comes to Arabic and Persian, literature from the Middle East, translations have been known to come up short, leading to cultural misunderstandings, the kind that reading the books of the other is supposed to correct. And when translators or editors fail in their jobs, context can be sacrificed, stereotypes can get reinforced, not what the writer had in mind when they first put pen to paper. The Listening Post's Tarek Nafan now with a look at what gets lost in translation. The most important part of literary translation for me is to capture the voice of the text that you're working with. So you're not just translating them across languages and across cultures, you're translating them across time. Nuance, of course, will be lost, but also nuances can be rediscovered. That's part of the alchemy that is literary translation. One thing that's poorly understood about translation is that when a text moves from one language to another, it is transformed. It is almost never word for word. So translators become cultural mediators, balancing faithfulness to the original with the needs of a new audience. There's this old world notion of translation as a kind of sterile mechanical process that involves a, a direct reproduction of a text into a target language that is more or less faithful to the letter or spirit of the original. But that's not the case, and it's almost never the case. I don't think there can ever, ever, ever be a totally faithful translation, because any translator coming across anything has to read the text and then decode it and put it back into another language, and all languages are different. Translation is 
the manipulation of a text into not only a target language, but a target culture, a target consumption environment. And consequently, this process will be impacted by power imbalances, by ideologies, by perceptions, preconceptions, misconceptions. In the 19th century, an era of European imperialist expansion, a group of Western scholars, painters and translators known as Orientalists took an interest in the Middle East. But their reimaginings of Arab and Persian culture were often detached from the realities of the people that fascinated and beguiled them. Richard Francis Burton was an archetypal Orientalist, an explorer, soldier, scholar and spy who once smuggled himself into Mecca disguised as an Arab. Burton is also responsible for the translation of 1001 Nights and the Kama Sutra. Another Englishman, Edward Fitzgerald, took the poetry of Persian polymath Omar Khayyam and transformed it beyond recognition on its way into the Anglosphere. So you have this power dynamic where the, the Westerner basically feels as if they own us. And in a way, they, they really did own us. And our countries kind of became a playground for these uh, Westerners to kind of run around in and find manuscripts and find texts. And they don't feel a responsibility to treat them fairly, or they don't see the culture that they're coming from as equal to them. And this is especially the case with Fitzgerald, who translated Chayyam. He did say, it amuses me to take what liberties I like with these Persians, who really do need a little art to shape them. And that has been seen as one of the, in a sense, most offensive of the old colonial statements about translation. But what Fitzgerald does with Omar Chayyam is he, he turns it into, we must be honest and say, an extraordinarily beautiful poem, so successful that it's generally regarded as, as one of the very, very few cases where a translation entered into the canon of English literature. The world of translation has moved on since Fitzgerald. He wouldn't be given such license today. However, more subtle distortions continue. Publishers can play a role here by selecting or editing translated literature in a way that reinforces old stereotypes. So the, the passive, victimized, veiled Muslim woman, the barbaric, violent Arab male, you know, these are, these are the, the stereotypes that we're talking about. So if the novel already has these themes in it, then it's certainly easier for it to land a translation deal in the English-speaking world. Nawal Sa'dawi, this very iconic feminist activist from Egypt. When her texts move from Arabic to English, what essentially happens is that she becomes simplified and she becomes reduced to only caring about quote-unquote women's issues. But she had a wide-ranging remit of critiques. She was an anti-imperialist, an anti-capitalist, Translation can be a murky process, but ultimately the publisher gets the last word. Larry Price was confronted with this after working on In Praise of Hatred by Syrian author Khaled Khalifa. She later discovered that the final chapter she had translated wouldn't be included in the novel. It charts the progression of the narrator, who was a young girl, into a very intolerant version of Islam. 
and it's narrated in the context of increasing crackdowns against um, any kind of dissent within Syrian society. They decided that they preferred the book to end after chapter three. They felt that it was a stronger ending. In this chapter, Marwa has left Syria and she's now living and working in London. But even though she's ostensibly free and unveiled, she's haunted by the events in her homeland and they have not left her. And so that ending was excised. The way that it reframes the story is consequential because Marwa, the title character, does become this kind of stereotypical, veiled, secluded, oppressed female. And, and it's an image that is reinforced on, on the cover as well. And so the text is made to cater to that rather than disrupt those ideas or those expectations. Increasingly, translators are becoming more outspoken about their work. Persian Poetics is the brainchild of translator Muhammad Ali Mujaradi. It's where he calls out the world-famous but mistranslated quotes of Persian Sufi poet Rumi. One of Rumi's most popular translated verses reads, Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. The original, according to Mojaradi, is closer to Beyond heresy and faith, there's another place we yearn for what's in the midst of that desert plain. They kind of stripped away the Islam again, stripped away the, the archaicism, and they took out the Rumi and they blended in this milieu that was existent in the 60s and 70s. This kind of vaguely Eastern Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, kind of all mixed together with words like guru and mentor and, and things like that. These books have huge impacts on the way that things are perceived. When Islamophobes would say, oh, Islam is this, it's barbaric, it's evil, it's devoid of any deeper meaning, deeper truths. There's no beauty in Islam. Uh, when I would pull up people like Rumi, a lot of times they would say, well, Rumi doesn't count because he's not a Muslim. Translation has always been somewhat of an underappreciated art, with translators often consigned to the margins or remaining totally invisible. That's not the case anymore. The translator's voice is being heard and recognized, and readers are better off when they understand how the mechanics of translations work and how that influences which books you see in your local bookshop. Translation is uh, a dynamic process, and it's a process that is never neutral, and it is always impacted by power imbalances. It holds within it all of these different contextual ideas and biases and prejudices, and being made aware of these factors will enhance your understanding and your appreciation of the text itself and of the culture that it comes from and how it has come to your culture. And finally, television thrives, sometimes lives and dies on spectacle. In India, where there are more than 400 TV news channels alone, the competition to put out the flashiest product can be intense. This past week, coverage of the new national budget had broadcasters vying for eyeballs and none could match the manufactured drama of the Hindi-language channel Ajtak. It gathered its analysts around a table and then suspended them 50 meters above ground. 
Did the elevation enhance their analysis? Hard to say. The production staff, though, must have asked, what if someone around that table needed to go to the loo? We're leaving you now with the trailer that Ajtak put out for its coverage and some analysts who appeared to be above it all. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. बजट पर हमारी विशेष पेशकश में आपका स्वागत है ऊंचाइयों को छूता है आज तक और एक अलग तरह की ऊंचाई आज हम छूने वाले हैं जब 160 फीट ऊंचे बजट पर चर्चा करेंगे ये मानना पड़ेगा कि महंगाई की मार देश के गरीब पे सबसे ज्यादा पड़ती है हम कई फीट ऊपर इसलिए लेकर आए हैं ताकि अपने खास मेहमानों से चर्चा कर सके की क्या वाकई इस बार का बजट भी यही उड़ान भर पाएगा इस उम्मीद के साथ कि देश विकास भी इसी गति से करे रॉकेट स्पीड से